Hi, I'm Russ Camarda, an independent filmmaker and actor in New York. And in between the chances I get to do my creative projects, I love to sit down and talk with other artists to see how it is they do what they do, how they take art and use their craft to reveal truth to an audience. So in this series of conversations, you'll meet some people you may recognize, some people you won't recognize, but they're all independent artists and we'll get in-depth in a long-form conversation to see how it is they do what they do. Welcome to Art Craft Truth. So this time on the Art Craft Truth podcast, another true pleasure for me, literally my oldest friend, we know each other as long as we've been alive from little tiny kids, uh, Jack Latore. He is what you call a renaissance man. He's a master in a couple of different kinds of art forms. He's a visual artist, an illustrator, painter, uh, teacher of that as well. And he's also a master in martial arts, particularly the uh, Filipino martial art of Pakiti Terja, which is a blade fighting, stick fighting, close quarters technique. Uh, and he's a grandmaster in, 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 in that art form as well. So you wouldn't think those two art forms correlate or, or, or go together. But through this conversation uh, where we reminisce about our childhood and influencing each other creatively all the way up through, you'll see how a, a grandmaster in a martial art and a visual art come together. Uh, this is one of my favorite conversations. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Jack Latore. Plug. It's all right. It's a tradition. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's have a little toast, my friend. A little, little scotch and water here for you. Right. Here's to I find you to be more eloquent, so I'll leave it in your hands. Uh, yeah, well, uh, here's to uh, old friends. Tonight's kind of special. <laughs> yeah, right. 50 years of friendship. 50 How years. many people can say that? that? I can't imagine. I don't know anybody else in my life who can say that, so that's pretty awesome. Right, here's to you. Hmm. Fantastic. Oh, that was I figure if I'm going to embarrass myself, I might as well. Yeah, have a exactly. All right, so so um, before we you know kind of get the formal thing underway, all this is going in. By the way, it's all going in there. So <laughs> I was um, afraid of that. Yeah, uh, you you know the basic deal of this. This is uh, it's just a conversation between two artists talking about their crafts. And what's cool about you is you have two totally different crafts uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, you're a visual artist, obviously, um, mm. and then you're a martial artist, and you're a master of both of these things, which is. I don't think I've ever had anybody like that with such divergent, you know, uh, crafts to talk about. And uh, well, I can't dance with crafts. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet your footwork is really good, though. <laughs> Thank you. Flatter will get you everywhere. That's right. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely get into that. And uh, and like I said, it's a conversation, so we can you can throw things my way as to how your things relate, maybe to acting, how mine really. You know, we'll we'll play around with it and see what it goes. But um, but at least to begin. Uh, I let's get reacquainted. I mean, let for everybody. First of all, this is something interesting. How do you prefer? How do we pronounce your last name exactly? I'll respond to anything really. You just call it out. There. <laughs> uh, it, it, it traditionally is supposed to be Latore, Latore, but it's been anglicized to Latore, and I'm totally fine with it. That's yeah, because I, I always remember Latore as a kid, and then it, w it became Latore as we uh, got older. <laughs> yeah, I. Most people call me Jack or Hey You, so yeah. whatever, whatever's right. called out or respond. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so for people who uh, are uh, listening to this, Jack is literally my oldest friend. We we literally know each other our entire lives. He we uh, 
uh, he, he and I grew up across the street from each other in a town called 1828 East. and 1829 Glenmore Avenue. That's right. In East Meadow, New York. East Meadow, New York. Uh, and we used to, we used to stand as little tiny kids. We weren't allowed to even go into the street. We would throw the ball across the street. At <laughs> the parents, old school. That's right. And you now, uh, you're up in Rochester. That's why we're zooming right now. Yep. So we are uh, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, properly socially distanced by like 900 miles, which is good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that might be gross exaggeration. 400. <laughs> 400, something like that. I knew, it was, I knew you were up there. I know you're. Are I mean, you in Massapequa now? Or where no, are this is, uh, I'm, this particular place is Lindenhurst. I'm in Lindenhurst. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, not too far from there. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into it a little bit. I mean, uh, when we grew up, the, th the one thing I remember about uh, you artistically right off the bat was your entire family. You have how many brothers and sisters? Three sisters and one brother. Three one sisters. sister passed away. Yes, right. But, uh, yeah, we've all always been involved in the arts in some fashion. Right, and uh, and mostly all, music. Mostly music, right? And and everybody played an instrument. You played the sax, right? Oh, please don't remind me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, lo I loved it. Yeah, but like, like I look back on it and such a positive experience but like i would be it would be criminal if i picked up a sex <laughs> were you interested it was fun i loved it when i did it were you interested in 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 music at the time or were you kind of were you all just kind of pushed into doing stuff uh i wasn't definitely wasn't pushed into it i got into sax because um i originally wanted to play drums in in grade school but they already had too many drummers uh, <laughs> dean serpico took my my spot in the band so <laughs> dean um, so I played sax because, you know, my big brother Jeff played sax. Right. He was a great role model. Right. So, uh, so I followed it and, you know, I kind of tolerated all the, the, the concert band stuff because I really just wanted to get to jazz ensemble and that's when I really loved it. So then, uh, you know, in the high school years and playing jazz ensemble, I, I probably at the time I enjoyed my music classes more than my art classes. I'll tell you, I remember, you know, we could open our windows across the street at any you know given uh, weekday or after school or weekend, and somebody was playing the piano, some beautiful concerto somewhere, or blowing, blowing the saxophone. It was incredible to always have that in the neighborhood. It's so funny you mention that because like you're one of the, like you're one of the few people that would remember that. And I just remember that, like people's windows would open, people would sit on their stoops with some iced tea or a beer or whatever. That's right. And uh, chances are they were listening to Liz. Uh, she'd right. play on at the upright at the time, and then she eventually got a baby brand, and she'd just be playing and practicing. People would just come out and listen. And oh. I loved that because I, I felt like, look at what my older siblings can do. <laughs> and it was and she's still playing. So oh. she's uh, she works over at Ryder over in Princeton. Um, and she'd come. She's like, well, I guess she's got a reputation as being one of the best companies in the country. So. Wow. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Wow, that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was like a neighborhood. I mean, it was, you know... It was uh, freeze tag and, uh, you know, and running around the neighborhood and causing havoc. And, you know, we were the uh, age of uh, <laughs> we were the age of free range children. So we were just out from dawn till dusk and nobody knew what the hell we were doing. And that was a great upbringing. Oh, my gosh. It, re so, yeah. it really was. And I think was that was actually a lot of the fertile ground for, uh, um, you know, we were going to come here and talk about creativity, but just um that level of freedom, uh, the level of experience, you know, boarding on criminal. And after you moved away, it was criminal. Right. Um, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, for both of us, um, it was criminal. <laughs> yeah, it was that crowd. Um, but yeah, just the ability to kind of problem solve and 
that freedom of thought um, kind of different from this age. I, mean, I don't yeah, know if I exactly put my tongue on it. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, I've touched on that a few times with different people on these podcasts because a lot of them are the people I've talked to who grew up the same time we did. And that's a... You can't deny the effect that has on on your outcomes, you know, just the way we were kind of let loose, you know? Right. Um, one of the things that I think happens more often now because of uh, the media platforms available is kind of that social programming. Uh, we didn't have that back then. No. So, you know, if, if I guess, you know, nowadays it's not too unusual to have your opinions given to you. And back then, you know, if you didn't like someone else's opinion, it was a giant middle finger, you know, especially <laughs> when we grew up, you know, it was a very Italian Irish neighborhood, right. you know, in, in New York and, you know, F you F that, that, yeah. you know, so that kind of feel for it. You know, I don't, I don't care if you don't like what I say. Right. As, as you remember my dad coming out on, you know, in his shorts out into the neighborhood, just taking care of business. <laughs> he was the classic get off my lawn. <laughs> he was. Yeah. He totally, totally was. Remember. I was actually just talking uh, the other day uh, about him, about uh, I had the candy dish on your coffee table and how like no one could touch it. <laughs> or like there was that iced tea in the fridge and like we had to wait till everyone was out of the house before we could like dip into that. It was like iced tea. So. Yeah, you didn't want to screw around with his stuff. So. No, no, and that's, no. And, and he's the one who put the doers in my blood. So uh, I'm, I'm drinking, you know, uh, neighborhood scotch because of him. The Tony Camara. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He'd be proud <laughs> that, we're still, be. that we're still talking to each other. Um, <laughs> so... So music, was music first or was, because I, I remember we used to play around, we used to draw and stuff together, but was music first or was, was art first? Or, you know, art was first. Art, art was, was first. always first. Because um, that was the, the quickest venue of something inside getting outside. You know, with, with music, you know, for me, you needed training to do, you know, art for, for, I mean, for doing saxophone. I didn't have the technical chops for it. But, you know, everyone draws. Everyone does mark making. Right. Um, and I remember the experience of, you know, back in the days when we had encyclopedias, flicking through the encyclopedias and seeing uh, a lot of the, the Greek mythology and tracing the little illustrations they had in the encyclopedia. Uh, that's actually how it started. And then I started tracing um, comic books and tra tracing Mighty Mouse. That's actually one of my, like, clearest memories wow that's interesting memories. tracing i didn't even i i wouldn't have known that yeah it just uh it was the start of a lot of positive reinforcement right because you know and i tell this to my own art students you know i'm an art teacher and you know uh everyone starts off drawing and everyone has that experience to some degree of like having drawn a piece of proud of and the parents hang it up on the fridge and they get patted on the back and they're like oh that's wonderful <laughs> and then comes that fateful day where you hang something on the fridge and they're like, oh, that's a wonderful reindeer. Like, oh, that's supposed to be an alligator. <laughs> uh, and then you feel bad, so you stop doing it. And, and I tell my visual arts majors, the difference between you guys and, you know, the music majors and the drama majors is that you guys never quit. Even if you heard the criticism or whatever, you just love doing it, so you did it anyway. Uh, other people got very self-conscious about it. And, you know, they were, you know, uh, shamed. Mm -hmm. uh, not intentionally, but they felt ashamed. Right, and so that's where I draw the line for people who continue in visual arts as opposed to people who do not. 
Wow. So it's the just, refrigerator experience. It's just the, there's a need that has to get out and that's it. It's just going to come out one way or the other. Right. And you know, and we started uh, as kids, obviously, like a lot of kids. But we we uh, we collected comics. We love, and we and we didn't just collect comics. We loved the uh, the stories, the stories, and but the inking and that, like, we looked at. We went into the horror stuff and that, like, the Frazettas and those guys. Like, what was some of the original stuff that you remember looking at that you thought, oh, that's that? I love this. I want to draw like this. I want to do that. I remember, as far as the comic book influences. Uh, the Avengers, <laughs> I mean, Captain America also. Um, but actually, your house, see, this is so cool that we're talking about this. It's because, pretty I mean, awesome. You are really the cradle of the creativity experience. <laughs> um, the giant bookshelf you had and all the horror stuff where you'd see Creature of the Black Lagoon and you know, taught me about Bela Lugosi and the, the old school um, special effects. And that was, it was frightening at first. I remember the smell of the books. <laughs> I remember the smell of the living room. I remember the dog and the cat. I remember Jupiter. Right. Um, but seeing those books and those experiences of, you know, wow, that's unusual. You'd never find this in my house. <laughs> but I could find it at Russ's house. And Russ, Russ's house was like the, 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 the sacred, you know, forbidden fruit there. That's right. Yeah, and and uh, but were there, were there, what were the early ones? I mean, like I said, I threw out a couple of, weird illustrators that we loved but i mean what was it was was it the jack kirby avengers was it like was there a particular style that you liked early on or uh, i loved jack kirby stuff and at that point i wasn't exposed to much more right. um so jack kirby looking at his captain america and his fantastic four was pretty great uh but then as you know we get more mature you get to see some of george perez's stuff and started mm. falling in love with george perez and then Eventually it was John Byrne and seeing John Byrne's X-Men with you know, the work he did with Chris Claremont and, right. and John Austin. And then eventually Bill Sienkiewicz, who was uh, like a monster. Moon Knight. I mean, just to <laughs> know that he drew the way he was drawing back then and then what he does now. And now he's like one of the great legends of, of media. People love Bill Sienkiewicz. Right. I mean, I, he's such a, a famous name now. And I remember as kids, you introducing me to, to that name. Like I, I, Moon Knight. I, Moon Knight, yeah, that was the coolest comic ever. He was Marvel's yeah. Batman, you know. And and I loved the character, and I thought Sienkiewicz was good then, uh, but he looked like Neil Adams. And then as I listened to that interview you uh, shared with me, like that's what he was doing. He was trying to be Neil Adams, like Neil Adams Batman. Um, and then New Mutants hit, and that's when he started doing all the spattering stuff. And it just so happened uh, in college, I had a friend who was. Uh, in his class, because I think he was teaching at the Joe Kubert School at the time, and he would teach the class, and then he would like pull the shower curtain across his desk, and he would do his techniques because he didn't want anyone knowing oh. how he how he did what he did. You know, it's kind of like Eddie Van Halen playing right. his back to the right, right, right. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, what was so. it about? Uh, what was it about those styles? Can you articulate? You know what? What it was? Was it flow? Was it lines? Like what? What is it about that particular craft that was? that you dug the the craft of the artists the uh, well the i guess the artists the, the artists themselves you know how they expressed themselves they were very different you know a lot of these guys they were different i think i was too young to really understand the difference i was really caught up in the storytelling and the drama being built up okay i, I, I enjoyed it immensely the idea of, of good versus evil the first time i really started noticing technique was john Byrne. Mm. um 
just because I just like the fluidity of the lines. And then as far as comic art was concerned, it was Bill Sienkiewicz and his work with the New Mutants where he's splattering stuff. I'm like, holy smokes, where's this guy coming from? <laughs> um, but truly what I was looking at, like artistic influences, yeah. even though I was kind of being able the comic book stuff, probably the most influential piece of art when I was a kid was uh, Albert Dürer. He did a beautiful woodcut of uh, Four Horsemen. Mm. And I was astounded by it. And I didn't understand what woodcuts were at the time. You could see, like, you cut out the wooden plate and you press the, you inked it up and you press it against wow. the paper. But as a kid, I didn't understand that. I just saw these line lines. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's why I got maniacal with things like hatching and cross hatching in my own report because of uh, Albert Dewey. Wow. And was it, uh, so when you dove in, obviously it wasn't woodcutting, but you, you were doing pen and ink and pencil and just stuff? Just pen and ink. Yeah. You know, and, and, and working out of blissful ignorance. I want it to look like that, so I have to draw like that, as opposed to understanding the medium that he was doing it in. You know, it worked out all right. Wow. And then, of course, you know, influencing, being influenced by other people, but I would have to say Albert Durer's was the, the real gestative point for, like, my pen and ink work. You know what? Uh, we're going to parallel. We're going to run parallel roads. You know, uh -huh. we're going to, yeah, it's, it's, we're going to split our, we're going to go Moon Knight and we're going to do multiple, multiple personalities. So we're going to run parallel roads at the same time. So when we're kids, right, you and I on Saturday afternoons, Channel 5, we would watch, <laughs> we would watch the Kung Fu movies, man, with the, with the, with the scope, you know, video and the, and the, and the bad dubbing. And we would go out and beat the living crap out of each other with sticks and homemade weapons. I mean, so fun. <laughs> Balsa wood nunchucks, right. attached with cords, like broomsticks, uh, and then like going through Black Belt magazine and trying to order stuff and like stuff that little kids shouldn't have. And we would get stars it. In it, like real nunchucks. Yeah, we would. We'd so. be able to order. Back then, you could order all that stuff, and you know, to an unknown <laughs> kid, you yeah. know, and we just throw uh, Chinese stars at each other. Send me something sharp. <laughs> yes, right. here's twenty bucks. Right. So, was the were the martial arts at the same time, always, uh, you know, kind of infused into your character at the same time as a kid? Yes, but I didn't know it. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Chinese cinema is, is very often a gestative point for martial artists. They watch right. kung fu movies, and I enjoyed it, but I watched it for fun. You know, I thought it was cool, and I wanted to do it. And, of course, you know, like you and me and other neighborhood kids beat the crap out of each other <laughs> right. all the time. Um, and then I remember wanting to take karate, uh, Master Higa, or, or taking uh, YH Park's Taekwondo in, in East Meadow. Right. And uh, asking my parents, because some of the other guys are going to take uh, class, like Polio and some of those right, guys. Right, right. Anthony Polio. Yes, yeah. he's out there somewhere. Um, and I remember my parents saying no. My dad said no. And I was like devastated, because like my friends could take it. I said, why not? And then I found out uh, afterwards that uh, my father was really against me taking Japanese martial arts, because he had a a bias against them, and I didn't know why. And later on, it wasn't until my college years that I found out that he was actually a guerrilla fighter, and his a lot of his um, village were beheaded by the Japanese. Uh, wow! So now we should so, we should introduce what your what your background is. What is what 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 is your uh, 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 ethnic background for the for the folks? Who oh, uh, Filipino. Filipino. So uh, what I didn't know until my brother, my big brother Jeff brought out and the Tajus was uh, my father was a guerrilla fighter in the Philippines, um, just a quiet fisherman 
uh, you know, providing for the family. And uh, then the invasion of the Japanese happened. Um, mm. Pearl Harbor happened first. And they sure. still had all like the original news clippings. Wow. And yeah, it was pretty cool to look through those. But uh, eventually the Japanese came to his town and make a long story short, they imprisoned a lot of people. They beheaded the mayor. My father was able to escape and escaped to uh, nearby mountains or hills and was actually, uh, I guess he got in touch with an American colonel, Colonel Fertig, and uh, became a guerrilla fighter. He was running messages inside a coconut. And then, of course, he would also be the alarm system. You would climb up trees and wow. hit the tree with uh, sticks uh, to let people know that the Japanese are close by. Wow. So, yeah, but I didn't know any of that until, like, so my college age. Yeah, my right. Said, hey, did well, you know dad did this? I'm like, are you kidding me? And then all the pieces started coming together, and, you know, his bias against the Japanese. He wouldn't even go to Japanese restaurants for a while. Wow. Yeah, he was, he helped, he was bitter for a while, and eventually he let up. Wow. Became a very forgiving and loving man. But, um, but yeah. He had a great... I couldn't family. understand a lot of his bitterness. He, then, he had an amazing garden. What's that? <laughs> he had an amazing garden. That that much I remember from he he manicured yeah. that that home that you guys had like like nothing. Like, it was amazing. Yeah, like uh, yeah, none of that got passed on to me. <laughs> and even if I did, like you know, I wouldn't have time with uh, Josh around and Jake. So. Wow, those are your kids. But maybe when I retire, we'll see. Right. And didn't he? Uh, he served on a ship too, didn't? Wasn't he in? The, yeah, the SS America. Um, so after World War Two. Actually, during World War II, he got picked up by the Navy. He saw ships being worked on, being repaired from kamikaze hits. And they said, hey, come on on board. And that's what he did for a while. And he was on the SS America. Uh, and then he became an American citizen. To make a long story short, and during all his little travels, and all his little port of calls. And he uh, got a citizenship and then went back, married my mom, and came back and started the family. Crazy. And both our dads were in World War II, which is odd for our generation. Usually they were older than uh, the typical dads for our generation. That is true. I wish I had known this stuff back then. Yeah. Like, I knew your father was in World War II. Knew it. You know, saw the pictures, the uniform, right. you know, the wakazashi sort of, yes. you know, that you had for years. Right. Um, knew that. Um, my father didn't tip his cards much. And I always describe uh, my dad as a man of no words because mm -hmm. he didn't talk until I started asking the right questions and then, you know, I couldn't keep it quiet. Wow. Yeah, my dad, I mean, certain things he didn't talk about. It was parts of his life, but but I grew up with him singing Depression-era songs. You know, Buddy, Can You Spare a Dime and, and stuff from the third, because he grew up in the Depression. He was born in 1918, so that's that was the music I, he would sing to me. And it was like, you know, from the 30s. And all the other kids would look at you like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? <laughs> you know, that's the stuff. You were always an old soul. So. Yeah, I'm getting older. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to feel it now. So what's interesting is, and this is going to go as we go along, is this heritage, uh, the Philippine heritage, kind of comes out now in your, in your martial arts, which we're going to get into, uh, and what you really are a master at now. Uh, and I find that interesting that those roots kind of found their way and, and bloomed into what, what you do now as a, as a martial huge artist. Huge passion now, huge passion. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you know, go to the Filipino party. Sometimes you might, you probably remember some of the Filipino parties held at sure. you know, my house, you know, the pig roast and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And at stuff like that, you'd always have someone say, you know, attack me with them. You know, they take out a plastic knife or a butter knife and they do something. Um, <laughs> so I was always growing up around this stuff. But, you know, it wasn't people in karate geese or 
you know, people with long white beards and stuff. So it's just <laughs> right. like a bunch of people jerking around you know, in the backyard, drunk on off of a, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> right. But um, Schaefer. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the one beer to have when you have it. That's right. One. I remember. Um, so yeah, I didn't think of anything much of it, uh, other than when I was really young, my uh, my grand uncle, uh, Leoncio Romano, uh, we refer to him as Lou, uh, used to go to his apartment in Brooklyn. You know, uh, he was a Navy cook. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he was also a tough guy. He was a, he was a screaming door. He used to be a Navy cook and throw drunk sailors out of the bars in the Philippines. Um, so he'd cook, everyone would be eating, and then he put, took me back into another part of the apartment. And underneath his bed, he had a little uh, pool set. A miniature pool set, and he had took out the the cues, and he just hit me, you know, not hit me, but he'd throw a very slow strike at me. He's like, "All right, what would you do in this Filipino accent?" And I'd jump out of the way. What else would you do? And just that stuff. And those are the seeds that were planted. Wow. I had no idea what was going on. I wasn't terribly interested because I just wanted to play pool or, or play with toys. But that was the first time I actually saw it in any formal form. So then going to all these little other Filipino parties and see little hints of it. And it wasn't until I completed my undergrad and I moved to Rochester. I was uh, doing my master's at RIT. And on a whim, I saw a martial arts store, Katanoka Martial Arts. And I walked in and I saw a book, The Filipino Martial Arts as Taught by Dan and Santa. And I remember the name from you. Because um, I think you had a Black Belt magazine. Oh, yeah, and, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. Because right? of all the stuff he ordered. That's right. And, uh, I think he had told me that he was like Brucey's best friend, but I didn't realize he was Filipino. So mm. I had to buy the book, and that changed my life. Wow. Um, I, I, I saw I wanted to study with uh, Guru Dan. I saw the other names he mentioned in it, and all the stuff I was looking at, all the little drills I saw in there, was stuff that I saw growing up, and I just didn't know it was, there was a name for it. Right. And the reason why there wasn't a name for it is because there's all these different styles and systems. Right. Um, but I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like in front of my face, you know, my entire life. Your entire life. And, and it just so happened, like in like two or three months after buying that book, uh, Guru Dan was coming to my area. He was, I'm, I'm in Rochester, and he came somewhere to the Finger Lakes for a training camp. And I was like, I got to be part of that. Wow. And and then it was that where I was like, I got to become an instructor in Ethan. And my my path veered some, but he's he's a big influence on like every Filipino martial artist, pretty much. He's a living time capsule, but yeah, he was the gestation for me for, for that, for sure. Well, we're going to circle around. Like I said, we're going to circle back to these things. But so, so well, first of all, what is the uh, what is the the particular uh, art form that we're talking about here? The the stick form that you're that you teach and 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 master in. Um, it's called Pekiti Tersha. It means close thirds, and the Alago dialect in the Philippines. Pekiti um, Tersha. Pikiti Tersia. Pikiti meaning close and Tersia meaning thirds. So it's it means close thirds. It's like close quarters in, in right. English. Um, and brought to a, America by a, a guy named Leo Gahe. And it's a stick uh, fighting, uh, primarily, it's really right? blade, and blade. they just happen to use sticks as a training device. Gotcha. Um, but you can use it as sticks, and it becomes really anything like weapons of opportunity. Right. And, um, you know, after checking out some other Filipino martial arts styles, I, I decided to settle on under Kiti Tersia, it seemed um, like the most well thought out, uh, the most effective, uh, it suited me, and it became uh, my pursuit of study, you know. I did art school for four years, and, you know, one year of a master's, um, 
but I've been in Bikini Trisha 25 years. Wow. 25, 26 years or so. I mean, and, and it's still a, a field of study. I'll never stop studying. Right. All right. So now well, we're going to get back there, folks. This is going to be uh, exciting. Da- we're dancing. You leave. Yeah, this is exciting. So, <laughs> so let's get back to the visual arts. So in, uh, in high school, um, was there a program? Like, did you, I don't remember, I don't remember if I had something like that. Was there something for visual artists, like the, other than just art class or what did you do in, in high school? In my high school, yeah. no, it was a regular high school. Yeah, regular right. High school and, uh, and I just took art class. And just regular art class. That's the thing I did, just regular art. So like, you know, I did the academic stuff as every high school student does, but I, whatever elective time I had in my schedule was either on art or music. Right. That was my escape. Now, you, like a, a couple of, uh, at least, I think, three other guests that I've had, including uh, Federico Castelluccio and uh, uh, two, two of the others, went to SVA, School of Visual Arts. <laughs> so what, at what point in your life do you go, uh, I'm good at this, number one, and then number two, I should pursue, I should, stu- I should go on to a higher education in this, and what was the you know, what did, what was the thing where you said, I know I can do this. And this is, this is a passion of mine. So I would say I made that realization in 11th grade. Um, somewhere between 10th and 11th, but it was a case of, you know, people talking about college and what you want to go to school for. And I really had no clue. <laughs> um, it was either going to be earth science, you know, some sort of geology. Cause I mean, I kind of enjoyed the class and the real court. And, you know, by nook and crook, just saw examples of discipline around me, you know. Uh, you know, when growing up and you see a lot of the follies that teenagers go through, you know, sometimes it's easy to buy into it because you want to belong to something. And I think there was a pretty strong part of me that kind of did not want to belong to that. I, I wanted to have time to do things I wanted to do. And then when I started seeing people who excelled and what they did, you know, well, the thing thing they had in common was not merely a love for what they did. It was a discipline for what they did. They, when given a choice between two things, they picked the thing that they knew they wanted to be good at, even if it was not the easy choice. Hmm. Uh, they would make sacrifice to make that choice to get better at something. And that's what took over. And so, you know, come 11th, 12th grade, you know, whatever free time I had, it was taking art. Um, I, I'd stop paying hang out with some of the, the hoodlums that we would hang out with and uh, spend time at the East Middle Public Library, you know, just sit in the art section, looking at stuff, see things I could emulate, things I could be inspired by. Uh, and so I would spend a lot of time drawing in, in the library. If I wasn't home with my niece, Mara, uh, I was at the library drawing. What do you or think? at the park, I was at Eisenhower Park drawing. It was a peaceful place. And when I was able to drive, I would go to the uh, Planting Fields Arboretum mm. and draw that. It was like one of my favorite places to draw. Wow. What do you think it, uh, where do you think that came from? This, this sort of, uh, affinity for the discipline. What, what is, is, do you attribute that to your, are you prodding me? Uh, just a little, I'm sticking a little, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're not on the couch, but I could put you on the couch, but yeah. What, what, what do you think? Like where the others that we knew, some of us knew <laughs> may not have, uh, got that. what do you think that thing for discipline was? I think it came from another, like in retrospect, looking at uh, a number of people, you know, of course, my own family, like, particular Liz and Jeff, mm-hmm. I would say. Liz was a pianist and is still a pianist. And, you know, that's all she would do is practice, hours of practice. Hours right. Of practice. Um, 
and then uh, <sighs> <laughs> um, I would have to say I don't know I, this idea of excellence yes it, there was it was an idea of it not being ostentatious I wasn't doing it to show off to people I wasn't doing it um, so I wanted to earn money, although you know it, it was making money at the time. <laughs> right. um, it was a chance to get better at something and to dedicate yourself to something. Um, I mean, if you think about some of the crowd that we hung out with, sometimes, like at the time, as the fathers of adolescence going, sometimes some of that dedication was to alcohol or drugs, sure. or you know, raising hell or whatever. And there's a point where it's like, how far is this going to get me? And it feels kind of empty, and um, I figured that if I was going to do something, if I was, if I had to pick something for college, you know, if, I would try to pick something that I loved and that I could get good at. And so it was art school. And then, you know, really, I, once I knew that I like, don't need to stay in New York because I figured I'd rather be a small fish in a big pond than a mm. big fish in a big pond. Right. And so it was either Cooper Union, Parsons, or SVA. And it just so happens SVA gave me the, the free ride, so that's where I went. Well, what was it, talk about that? Was it what is a scholarship or like? How did yep, you... uh, the um, they offered a scholarship test, and so you know I think it was over sixteen hundred applicants, and uh, out of that, I think there was like twelve that got a full scholarship, and two of them came from my school. It was me and Tom Conti. Tom Conti, yeah, I remember Tom, Tom Conti, who now owns a uh, Conti Art and Design and. Manhattan, and uh, and then he went that route. But uh, yeah, and I, I think the people, the admissions people over at SVA were really impressed. Like, what kind of art department do you have? You both <laughs> got you know full scholarships. But it was just a case of um, two guys that that love doing what they do. In fact, Tom is probably the other really huge influence. Um, I knew about Tom in grade school. He went to a different grade school than I did, but I would see artwork from him float over. Uh, through a bridge program called Quest. And I remember I was uh, I was so accustomed to being like the best school artist. Sure. And then seeing his stuff, I'm like, wow, this guy's better. <laughs> and ever since then, it's been like a healthy competition. Through When I met him finally in middle school, um, I was impressed by him. I, he was reminded me of like the comic book artist that I wanted to be. Right. And then we got to know each other and started hanging out. And uh, ended up in, our, in the same art classes, ended up <laughs> going to the same art college on the same full scholarship, ended up in the same apartment that you ended up living <laughs> That's in. That's right. Too. I did live with you guys, uh, with you for anyway for a while. <laughs> right. And so if, if we talk about healthy competition, Tom continues. Well, let's talk I have about a great deal of gratitude to let's talk about this, uh, this drive for excellence and the idea of, of, uh, the 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 surroundings of peers that are excellent because now you go off it's not high school anymore now you go off to you know one of the great art you know conservatories and what do you, whatever you want to call it uh, institutions and uh what's it like when you start seeing the other work it has seriously yeah was the bar raised or were you like what you know like what's that like when you walk into that whole set, set situation Tom and I, at the time, I think it's safe I can speak for Tom. Uh, we both had an air of ridicule about us. Just, are you kidding me? Like, that's art? You know, it was that whole thing, like, being around people who were interested in modern art and not uh, getting it. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, we were just like, 
you got to be kidding me. You might as well like, spit a cupcake on a paper plate. And, <laughs> and that was kind of our attitude. In fact, there was one time we were visiting Cooper Union for admission. And uh, we broke away from the rest of the crowd. We're just doing our own personal tour, which we shouldn't have been doing, but we did. And we went through the gallery. And some of the stuff was like, what are you kidding me? This is what we're going to get a full scholarship at, at Cooper Union for. <laughs> and he was eating a muffin at the time. And he just like took a bunch of bites out and just put it in the middle of the floor like an exhibition. <laughs> Yeah, that's like classic. Time. That's great. Yeah. Um, and we thought there were some other, you know, really talented people there. You know, we were much more illustration minded, so that's why we right. went into the whole abstract thing. You know, kind of a small, a s small world around us at the time growing up. But um, you know, Tom wanted to do illustration at the time. The thing is that at the time, Tom had uh, graphic design brewing because his father owned the company. Okay. Guy County Art and Design. So he did illustration, but he was also doing graphic design. And because I knew Tom's dad, he hired me too. Okay. He's doing graphic design a little bit, you know, the delivery boy and stuff. But uh, I started realizing that fine arts was the way I wanted to go because I felt like I had more freedom to say what I wanted to say. Okay. So, so I went through so, the whole so, so just, as, just as a layman, what. Uh, Fine arts as, as opposed to illustration. Explain that to me because I don't understand it. Illustration is I'm pretty much being hired to draw images for other people. Okay. Um, I'm trying to get their ideas out on paper if they like my style, great. Whereas fine arts is, you know, more exploratory and you know, you're trying to draw or paint or create uh, based on your own inner visions, uh, things that you think are worth sharing with other people. And at the time, I needed that kind of creative freedom. So if I don't know if you remember back in our apartment in Queens, like those big abstract. Yeah, things. I do. I remember you had huge you know, canvases in the, in the middle of the apartment. Right. And the whole place smelled like a seed oil and <laughs> yes, right. turpentine. That's turpentine. You know, we were all afraid to like light up a candle. To That's right. Over Couldn't smoke um, a joint in that apartment. Jesus Christ, man. I know. <laughs> had to have all the windows open. That's right. <laughs> With the airplanes flying above. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, the, I, I needed that. Uh, and so for me, it was a lot of going through the fine arts program, trying to do the twists of logic in my head to understand the aesthetics I was seeing, even if I didn't agree with them, it would force me to see why someone was taking a particular path, even if I didn't like the aesthetic. So in, in that regard, I became a bit more open-minded about, you know, what is art, you know, it didn't have to look a certain way. Um, and therefore, uh, the paintings I had at the time. but. I would have to say going through that weird abstract phase ended up making me a better illustrator because after I left SVA and I went up to Rochester to become a teacher, um, started picking up a paintbrush. I was picking up a paintbrush to paint scenery for my school's uh, theater productions. Okay. Uh, I teach at, uh, back then I was teaching at School of the Arts, like fame up in Rochester. Right, right, right. It's fame with more snow. <laughs> and I still teach there. Okay. And, uh, but I was asked to help out with scenery. And what I learned abstractly and about paint in college helped me paint the scenery really fast in a uh, school of the arts. All right, so and let's let's uh, let's dive into that a little bit. So, so the two different, completely different styles the illust the illustrative style of you know more, you know representational stuff, and then this abstract stuff. What was it about the abstract uh, craft, the craft of the abstract artist that? that influenced that other piece? I would have to say it was less about the craft of the abstract as much as it was my painting teacher, who was an abstract painter. Okay. And who really taught me about 
um, what paint does. He really didn't care if a painting was abstract or representational. He cared about good painting, hmm. um, what the paint does. Uh, Steve Westall, he's actually, I think he still writes for Art in America. He's like a, got some sort of knighthood in Italy. Or <laughs> um, really cocky guy. Hated him the entire first year I had him. Well, actually, no, the first semester I had him. And when I had him, when I had him for the second semester, I started listening to him. He would talk like, like a mystic shaman. I, was like, <laughs> I don't understand this guy, but I, I'll give it a shot. And when I started trying to adhere to what he was saying, I started seeing some results happen that I've never had before. And I learned enough that semester where I had to take him the following. What was he saying? And I paid off him. What, what was he? What's what, that? What was he saying? I'm fascinated. Little jerky things. Uh, <laughs> He talk about this. Here's one analogy he used. He was talking, you're painting with oils, and he's like, uh, yeah, don't. He was, you know, paint with oil as if it's like, it's like sexual fluids. I'm like, what? And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, this one. It's a good thing that I can get on a full scholarship. I'm not paying for this. But um, but I got it. Like, he didn't mean, he, didn't mean, he meant don't paint dryly. Right. That's what he meant. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I got right, it. You know, it's like, you know, it's uh, he would say other stuff uh, about your relationship with the painting. I said, don't constantly do to the canvas. That's kind of like art rape. Mm. You know, if you're just doing it and trying to impose your will on the canvas. Right. So sometimes you've got to do stuff to the canvas, watch what happens, and, and, and see the results you get, and then it can kind of do back to you. So it's kind of like art love making. Oh, man. Yeah. See, now you're talking my language, man, because I, I've been with different artists, dancers and comedians and, and, and actors and directors and stuff I've talked to. This is another theme that runs through this show, which is allowing, allowing what's in front of you as an artist to influence the, you know, not imposing that, that forebrain. It has know, to that, be this way. It has to be this way to let the art kind of talk to you and, and get away from this idea of vision and my, my vision and, and let the art talk back. I, I, it's the first time I've heard uh, um, an illustrative artist say that. What's well, funny that, cause that lesson also applies to teaching. Cause like when people ask me what I am, my response is a teacher. I, I rarely ever respond as an artist ever. In fact, uh, Renee would introduce uh, and Renee is your wife. Introduce me as, a, as an artist. I'm right. like, and, da, 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 da. <laughs> and she changed like, at least my husband, uh, our teacher. Uh, but that's a big thing. Like, instead of imposing your will on the students, listen to what they have to say and, and respond. And, you know, based on what they say, what they do determines your next step. And, uh, and that's been super helpful. So like lessons of painting become lessons in so I'm going to tie this stuff into the martial arts as we go along, too, because it really, it, I mean, it, it, it absolutely correlates perfectly. I mean, especially in strike, counter-strike, you know, for what you do for boxing, for everything, any, any kind of uh, martial art, that's the whole idea is to take what's given you and, you know, and, and find the angles around it. So it, it works in all art forms. But before we get ahead, when you're in SVA and you're, and you're thinking ahead, are you, are you planning to become an illustrator? Like, or are you thinking I'm going to be a teacher? What was your plan when you got out of there? Like, what were you thinking you were going to do as an artist? I went into SVA thinking I was going to become an illustrator. Mm. Second year, I decided to want to be a fine artist painter. And during that time, I discovered that I hated artists. <laughs> I couldn't find a more 
egotistical bunch to be around. And it, it, it's funny because, you know, all I want to do is create. And I, all I was surrounded by was people who wanted other people to pat them on the back. I was wow. like, this doesn't seem right to me. This is not kind of the giving aspect that I wanted to have. And it just so happened I uh, had someone in my painting class who was talking about teaching. And I was like, ooh, maybe I could go watch them. And I did. And I fell in love with it. And so I started doing my student teaching down in New York at PS40 and uh, PS17 and uh, Washington every High School. And that kind of cemented it. And I knew that I wanted to become a teacher. But I you know I had to do a master's, and it just so happened at the time RIT uh, Rochester Institute, Institute of Technology had a one-year program, and I was like, that's for me. I'm gonna do a one-year program, and I'm gonna come back to New York and uh, teach because uh, Washington Irving High School wanted me, mm. uh, and I went to RIT and I got hired uh, at the Rochester School of the Arts. What was the my, uh, What was the thing about? Uh that first uh, blush of love with teaching, what, why, why did that hit you like that? What was it about? It was a service. It wasn't about what I can do. It's about what could you get someone else to do. Mm. And so one of the things that I held in great disdain in the fine arts was this kind of, uh, this ego fit self admiration. You know? Look at me, look what I can do. Isn't this a wonderful shade of blue? <laughs> which I couldn't really stand. You know, I hated sitting in galleries and listening to people like this. I wow. just had to walk out of them every opening I've ever gone to just because I couldn't stand it. <laughs> but you know, listening to teachers and listening to the differences they were making with other human beings and looking back on my growing up and seeing the experiences that I had that, you know, that got me away from some of the, the bad behavior. Uh, you know, when you look at the guys who grew up with yeah. some of the stuff that was going on, you know, still dear buddies of mine. Of course. But, you know, some of them went to jail, some of them went to the grave, and yeah. some of them was escaped. And, you know, seeing what difference the teachers made. And so I have to do a shout-out to, you know, my, the best teacher I ever had, Ellen First. Right? Mm. Um, made a big difference in how I approached life. And where, where, did, where did you encounter her? She was, I had her in my, she was my 11th grade English teacher. Ah, uh, the and older. There's not a, not a year that goes by that I think about, like, how do I have some of that passion in what I do. Wow. So she's still around. She's still in New York. She retired, enjoying her life. But uh, yeah, think about her all the time. Well, just as a, uh, as a, as a side note, I mean, we, we, we've alluded to this, you know, a derelict youth that we had. Uh, and yes, our hair was long and we did a lot of, you know, stuff. But what the interesting thing about you and I is, I, we grew up together from babies all the way till about 11. And then my dad died and I moved away. Uh, to another town, and you stayed in that town. But derelict as we were, we parallel lives we had. We both became the president of our class with yeah. the with the with the long hair and the and the denim jackets and the and we totally we totally neither one of us fit the mold, but were able to mold the the classes we were in at the time. I was so weirded out about that because I remember when you moved, it was like heartbreaking for me. It's like this is a guy who understood my creative side. This is a guy. You know, I spent like every day, you know, hanging out right. and stuff. So, you know, it was for a while, I was, I was a loss. And it just so happened I got found by Anthony Poehler. <laughs> and that's when, like, the beginning of the end started. Um, yes. But we stayed in touch, and it was interesting how parallel our lives were. You know, you were in drama and theater and mm -hmm. became your class president, and I ended up doing 
the art and music thing. We became point class president and, you know, we've been in touch, you know, we lived together. Yeah, we lived briefly you know. together. Yeah, after, after, was that after college? It was 1990? During college. During, during college. college. Um, I didn't go to college. I had so. moved out. During your college. <laughs> so you were working in Manhattan and uh, right. you shared the apartment with me in Woodside. Right. Uh, 3428 62nd Street. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we did. And we've always sort of had, uh, um, I guess we got married around the same time too, somewhere and not too distant. Was it, am I wrong? You got married first. Yeah. I got married first. Yeah. But, and then, uh, and then, uh, I managed to get divorced first. Uh, so you're, you're good. You're, you're, I'm liking, you're not going, I'm liking yeah, you're, not, you're not going, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. Um, yeah, it's a fat. So my point is, we weren't complete derelicts the whole time. I mean, most of the time. No, I mean <laughs> we weren't. Uh, we were around the element. Yes, you know? and that was it, that made for an interesting growing up. And yes, the, and and they and because we we weren't just around that element, we were like, you know, we clicked with all the different clicks in exactly. our in our thing. So we were like the the ambassador of the breakfast club, you know, we were, we hit all the, all the different kinds and they all, they all understood us. And, and that's what made us a little odd. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a pretty accurate way of saying it for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I did come back a couple of times to stage some fights in your yard. I mean, I know we did that. Oh, <laughs> we used to have boxing was... matches. We used to have boxing matches in your yard. Gosh, it, I, I often refer to our growing up as like the little rascals. <laughs> Uh, maybe not quite as refined that's for sure right but yeah oh those are great man that was you know it fueled our our physical need to to hit people and hit things and and uh, and that's that's continued all the way through gosh those are some good days man <laughs> i remember the one particular tournament we had you knocked out oh what was neil Hieronymus? neil Hieronymus in four rounds I'm gonna make sure he sees this. Little rub it That's in his right. Face. And I stopped. Hit him when he was breathing in. He couldn't breathe. That's out. right. You dropped him like four times. And yeah, then, and, and I, I made stopped. his leg spin. So I dropped him. I made your leg spin. That's right. Corkscrew. That's right. And I dropped. Uh, who was it? Dave McGilsky? No. No. Oh yeah, yeah. It was McGilsky. McGilsky. I was gonna say no deal. Yeah. Yeah. McGilsky. I stopped him in three rounds. That was that was the that was yeah. that was our big uh, our big day where He's we were. Too busy running out of the ring. Right? That's right. He kept <laughs> he kept turning his back on me. That's what was the problem. So we had to stop the fight. Amazing. I, I wouldn't give up. And then we would have little fight. You know, when you came, when I moved away and you came here, uh, you'd visit and we'd go in the sump, you know, for people who don't know what the sump is, there are drainage. Uh, I don't know what the hell they are. They're drainage, water collection, water collection basins in the suburbs, uh, which kids don't play in anymore, by the way. They, they you know, shouldn't play in them. But that's all we did was play in those things, you know, right. and crawl through, <laughs> crawl through the sewer tubes and stuff but we'd come in and have and stage like because they were built in they were like scoop out landscapes so it was almost like an arena you know so you'd go it was in like and, a giant kitchen sink you could fight exactly and we used to go and fight and hit each other with bats and wiffle ball bats and wood bats and <laughs> i know when i went to your wedding some of the guys reminded me about that hey, you were the guys who kept on hitting my knuckles that's right you were Some people excel it was an it. early training it was an early training ground for uh for what you're doing now which is which is good yes. i'm glad i participated in that and actually it started early in that because we used to fight in the kitchen after the whole star wars thing came up that's right you had like some sort of like bogus dollar store lightsaber right. and we didn't ha we only had once so i you had like some sort of plastic pitchfork that's like right. a devil costume so we'd like be fighting in the kitchen by the gas stove and smacking each other right. 
it's a theme that I'm proud of that continues to this moment that, uh, that we're both, uh, a creative artist and we also like to hit stuff, which is, uh, that's, I, well, like. I mean, just, no, but I would have to say, and this is, I'm not saying this cause I'm on your show, damn it. This is saying cause it's true. <laughs> I mean, you are really the crux of creativity. It was like, it's one thing if you're growing up by yourself and, and kind of wandered your mind, you know, in a book or a drawing, but to have someone you can bounce stuff off of, right. Uh, you can create these stories and stuff. Right. Um, really powerful, you know, and, and I really came to appreciate it afterwards, you know, more I missed you. But then, like, you know, watching my own kids you mm. know, uh, grow up and, you know, maybe not having that. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that was a really powerful tool we had in our, in our relationship. Yeah, so, you know, I, I never... It's it's not something I, I I thought about I haven't I've thought about in a while but when you put it like that yeah, what a gift, you know what exactly. a, what an incredibly lucky gift to have that and and I've had you know great friends all the way through uh, some of them people have heard on these podcasts people I've grown up with yeah Vinny yeah, Vin, Vinny's a you know when I moved away from you he was the kid across the street where I moved to, and because but I heard him talk about building the. The movie sets, yes. the Star Trek movie sets, and like gluing up pieces of plastic. Like, oh my gosh, I remember that. That's you right. Know? That's right. And the kind of gumption, like that generation, our generation had. You know, just exactly. we don't even have a video camera, but I'm going to build this. We're going to build. It. We're going to build a set anyway. Someday we'll have a camera. You know. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm blessed beyond belief with the not only the people I grew up with, but they just happen to be amazing talents. Like, it's not just like, oh, this was a great guy. He was my great friend. All my friends have been just amazing talents. And uh, it's a, at the very least, if any, nobody ever listens to these, I'll have these great records of my closest, dearest spiritual friends and their, and what they did, how they did what they did. I'm, I'm just like, this is a blessing for me to do these uh, podcasts. So I love it. That's I'm, a really super cool thing you're doing. Man. Oh man, I love it. I, I, I freaking love it. All right. So let's, let's get circle back. So now... You, you discover teaching, you get out of SVA, you got a job right away, right? The the, the Rochester thing, right? Was that immediate? I uh, had to do like a master's program in art, art ed at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. And during that time, I was doing some student teaching. And I happened to get placed at Rochester School of the Arts. And while I was there, we were sitting down with uh, some of the, the big wigs at the school. And they asked us to bring some of our work. And I had my sketchbook, the black ink drawings in it. Mm. I remember that book. I remember that book. My, my, my big mentor in education, Al Coco, he saw it. The first time he met me, he's like, you're going to come to my class. And he brought me to his class and um, he made sure I showed the work and it spoke to the kids. And to this day, I still show it from time to time when, I, um, when I'm trying to show particular techniques or some points I'm trying to do. And it's because it's readily accessible and the kids connect to it. And I have instant street credit. What the... What what would you call what would you say that what what kind of stuff was that 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 we were you were looking at and maybe we'll we'll pull some of that for the video for this uh, later but what, what would you call that stuff? But you know, from a purely empirical sense, it was you know, uh, ink drawing, like ink drawing. Right. Uh, what it was started from was uh, from my psychology class in SVA. Uh, Dr. Judy Cuspid, God rest her soul, because I can't imagine she'd be alive still. But um, she was my psych teacher. And one of the things she asked us to do was keep a dream journal. Mm. And you know, I decided to start drawing one day. And I was like, I'm going to draw the dream I had. And then I finally asked her, I said, you know, can I, can I keep a dream journal in drawing form? She said, sure. And so I did. And she was 
great. And, you know, she never got to see it done, but that's, that's the start of the big Yeah. They're sort of surrealist, uh, caricatures and it's like a dream pieces of things that i remember that book is amazing stuff it literally took over 20 years to finish wow um, well because you know i had to nickel and dime it you know i had other things going on in life so it was rare i could just sit down an entire day and just you know, bang out a drawing so it was pieced together in little bits and, and i happened to be very blessed with a very sharp memory for certain things at least so i could remember dreams and put down the essence in a, in a, in a drawing so either the drawing was like a snapshot of a particular scene or if it's a conglomeration of an entire timeline, I had to put different elements right. because, you know, the dream is a temporal thing. It's literally like a movie, right. but I had to capture it in one frame. So, yeah, that's what the book So is. when you're approaching, let's, let's take that particular type of thing. When you're approaching a piece of work, blank page, um, what's the first thing? Are you seeing pictures? Are you... Are you letting the page talk to you? Or are you like, what's the first thing that happens? Do you draw lines? What the gist of the dream. What is the gist of the dream? Uh, how did it make me feel? And what's the best way to capture it? And sometimes it's a particular scene in the dream that pretty much underscores the entire feeling. Sometimes uh, one scene won't do it. Maybe it's a particularly long dream. So I'll have different parts of the dream in one piece that help remind me of the story. And do, and so, is it for you? Is it like pencil first, like yeah, pencil first, pencil first, block it out to make sure uh, things are in the right place, and then you know what's the general gist is there, just ink it, ink it. Wow. And really, the process is not that difficult. I mean, it looks complicated, but it's really not. And are you so once I, are you approaching the the page, the frame? Uh, because in in my art, whether it's on stage or whether it's on the screen. I'm, I'm looking for uh, leading lines, you know, like in photography and, and, and on stage, you know, how to block something upstage as a, in a, on an angle to, to somebody downstage left to somebody upstage. Like I'm looking for energy movement. Are you doing that kind of a thing on a page? Are you setting things in certain spots? Or are you just kind of, how does that work? I think every artist does that to some degree because you've got to figure a composition. Right. Um, the extra consideration from my approach is that um, sometimes I'm a participant in a dream where I'm seeing it first person and sometimes I'm an observer. Mm. So sometimes that often plays a part in how things are going. Right. Um, but more, the thing that drives it generally is what's the overall feel of this. And it's interesting because sometimes people look through the book and they'll think, oh gosh, this must have been a terrible dream. Like, <laughs> no, it, it, most of the dreams are not. They, they strike you as a nightmare because they're so unusual for you. I didn't realize I was having unusual dreams until I started sharing them. Once I started uh, drawing them, I think it was my second or third year at SVA, um, I started showing the books to some of my classmates. I was like, oh my gosh, what the hell? You know, what, what's going on? And I'm like, nothing. It's just, it's just, this is how, I didn't realize my dreams were weird. Right. Uh, it just so happened that uh, my fine arts painting at the time, these abstract things, and I was using a lot of symbolism, almost like a cuneiform, mm. uh, almost like some sort of glyphs. And uh, one of my friends was thinking, like, man, maybe you're just getting like these really weird transmissions from outer space. <laughs> right, you're you know, channeling. Maybe, maybe that's how it ties into your, your drawings. Mm -hmm. You should, uh, I don't know if you've taken, uh, uh, you know, any mushrooms or DMT or anything, but I'm sure you'll find some sacred geometry and some psychedelic somewhere and uh, it'll match up with you, whatever you're connecting to out in no, the universe. To this day, my friend, I'm, I'm still straight edge. Never right. even smoked weed. 
All right. No, okay. Nothing. Uh, so. Well, I'll come up there. I'll come up there when it's snowing, and we'll 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 do something. We'll here. <laughs> the two of us will sit and look at the sky, see what information we get. I mean, you're my the, you're my first friend. I started having you know, illicit alcohol, <laughs> sipping brandy up in my room. That's right. Scotch. I was like getting ready for Jill Bruno's Sweet Sixteen party. <laughs> you and I are sipping Cardinal Mendoza brandy, <laughs> all this fire water. That's awesome, man. So. Um, now, when we were, you're still in college. When we when we were doing the big stuff, uh, did you like? Do you like that? Do you like the, what's the, what's the does the size of the canvas matter? Does the size of the frame as an artist matter for you? Like, do you have one you prefer? Do you like working large, small? What is it? I mean, back then I loved the bigness of it. Um, it felt like I had room to like paint with my body, mm. you know, just these big motions and stuff. And you know, the, Steve Westfall had pointed out to me, it's like you know. I, Four square feet of red strikes someone differently than a, you know, a square inch of red. Um, you know, it just hits you differently. So painting big at the time was great, and I would bring these gigantic canvases on the subway to the studio. And <laughs> That's then, right. Like knocking people over on the subway on the hard line. But um, you know, I've become much more of a pragmatist. If you can't fit my car, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, age age tends to make you a little more practical so, about how things right, work. So like four by four is like just the right size. I won't go any bigger than that. Yeah, it's like, hey, and, Russ, you want to shoot a movie, uh, you know, a uh, 70 millimeter cinemascope? I'm like, well, I don't know. Can we put it in the iPhone? That'll, that'll be better. <laughs> Can I watch it on my own? Practicality. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Especially at this age. Mm -hmm. I got nothing to prove. So, uh, so now let's, let's, let's finish on some teaching stuff uh, we'll, and then we'll move on to back to the martial arts thing. So, as you're teaching and you're teaching the, you're teaching art, right? Mm -hmm. What what's the age you're teaching? Uh, seventh grade all the way through twelve. Okay. My f my first two years were spent teaching drawing and painting, and then there were budget cuts, and I, they were going to lose me. And so, in an effort to finagle me staying on board, because they they liked me being part of the team, um, they were in the process of making a new department, the theater tech department. Mm. And so they're like, "Can you do this?" And you know, I was like, "I'll I'll make myself do it." Right. So. Like for a few years after that, I, I taught theater tech, where I was, um, you know, helping out with all the theater productions, doing scenery painting, building stuff, and you know, very little experience, but learning on the job, and you know, spending a lot of time at the building, and then uh, eventually my time came when people were retiring, and they uh, they moved me back to art. And That's I've been right. Doing that since. And what do you find uh, in the different ages? Uh, obviously, there must be a different approach to how you talk to them, how you teach them, you know, what's, how does that work as, as an artist yourself? How do you translate what's in here to somebody else's mind? Cause I, I taught acting for a while and it's, it's one of the greatest thrills is to see them when they get it, you know? So but I'm, you were, you were teaching adults though, right? Yeah. I could never do kid. I couldn't teach children at all. That's not my thing. <laughs> I had no idea. Yes, I thought you were teaching kids. Yeah. No, uh, no, no kids, so. just adults. You know, a, a lot of what you're talking about, middle school seventh and eighth grade they're very self-conscious they're very caught up in their hormones and stuff so if you want to lure them in especially those who aren't visual art majors they have to experience some degree of success for them to want to continue a lot of education is making kid want to learn mm. and and some of that comes from like you know oh i didn't know i could do that so a lot of it's like taking them step by step allowing them to experience little successes that builds the trust so they'll continue following that's what happens by the time I have them you know, in high school, uh, 
most of that winning them over is is there or staying there so a lot of it's like getting them better technically but then allowing them to have more artistic latitude so until instead of telling them you know draw a face draw the still life it's more a case of i'm going to give you a problem and you're going to solve it mm. um the way i i use an analogy for uh ninth and tenth grade is uh I'm putting tools in your toolbox. I'm going to show you how to use them. And, you know, hopefully you'll feel good about, you know, how we'll use the tools. Come 11th grade, uh, you can use all the tools I told, I, I gave you. And you're going to, I'm going to give you a problem. Like you, you're going to build a desk. Uh, this project, you're going to build a, a shelf. And you're going to try to build the best one you can. You're going to try to solve that problem. And then come senior, I don't even tell you what to build. You have these tools. You've had experience building. What do you want to build? Gotcha. And so uh, the students have a lot more creative latitude. And I'll often, sometimes if they have uh, artistic block, give them some sort of a springboard. Like, for example, the, the latest project that my upperclassmen did was a catharsis project. We talked about what catharsis is, this idea of getting things out, especially in the COVID era. Mm. You know, what kind of things are these kids going through? They can't go anywhere. They can't go to school, see their friends, they can't socialize, and they should be. Uh, they see all the adults up in turmoil over stupid candidates, whatever. Um, how do you deal with this? Or did you need a, a, a vent for this? And so a lot of the work was about that, the mm. idea of what is a catharsis or what is a frustration and giving them a safe place to put it instead of letting it stew inside them or come out in like a really unproductive manner. What are the, yes. uh, what are the surprises you see from your student? Like, was the, have you had moments where you get that as a teacher, that aha, like, wow, that oh, yeah, all, I didn't see. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's, even though I've taught the subject for years, I mean, for them, it's the first time. So like to, to teach it as if it's the first time, so they get it. And, you know, so you're not tired of it because if they, they, they'll sniff you out. If, if you're, <laughs> if you're burnt out, they'll know. There's this one person uh, going through gender identity issues where at school um, they're accepted, but at home they're not. Mm. And so it came out in their piece, person who's trying to go through, uh, you know, this gender identity kind of issue and broken glass in it and screaming and you know a lot of the old teenage angst stuff right. coming out specific to that topic. Um, elements of self-harm, but having a safe place to express that right. was actually pretty genuine and helpful to that person. So talk, yeah, let's talk about, uh, I mean, the, the name of this show is Artcraft Truth and, uh, and the truth that art reveals. And that's my belief always has been that that that's the whole point is to is to take something that's uh, that's unseen, unfelt, translate it through the prism of your craft so that other beings can see it and feel it and take it and ingest it. And, and, and there is a truth that's shared somehow, whether it's film or acting or art. What is it in the visual art that that is for you? What what is the truth often that's revealed uh, for me? For you, for as uh, you, yeah, yeah, for you as an artist, for for things you've seen, like what do you think that particular craft does? Like for uh, um, uh, as an example, for for the actor or for the the filmmaker, there's there you're literally holding a mirror. You know, it's another human being doing and feeling something that you're probably not allowed to feel in your day to day existence in front of a computer or on a phone or whatever all day. And then you go to a cinema or you go to a theater and you you're allowed to. Uh, exp feel and express a truthful human thing that is is maybe out of your reach or maybe you don't want to explore all the time. That's what we do. For the visual artist, what is the truth that comes out? 
But for me, it's often, let me think about the right way to put this. It's that vulnerability that I can put out there and I can, I can hide it and stuff. Mm. So it's, uh, it's there. I can see it. Other people catch the gist of it, but they don't fully understand what they're looking at. They, they send something. Mm. And sometimes they, they take the time to look at it and, and reveal some of it. But it's a way to kind of get stuff out and safely get it out. And at the same time, it can have some anonymity to it. It can have some camouflage to it. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's in code. Mm. And the people who have the right components, the right parts of the truth can figure that code out. Right. That's interesting. Like, uh, it's like poetry, you know, the, the best poetry is, you know, I know what I feel when I write it. I know what I'm trying to say when I write it, but it doesn't matter. Once I put it out there, whatever they get is there's it's, it's coded in there. You know, you don't have to know yeah. exactly what I was thinking or feeling, but as long as you're exacting the truthful part of it. So that's the same, I guess, with the, with visual art. Yeah. The, uh, my friend West Hasker, he pointed out a, uh, piece by Lorca uh, called uh, it deals with the idea of duende. Duende in Spanish means um, like a wood spirit, an elf, some sort of of, of uh, little wood spirit that's kind of mischievous. <laughs> but it, it became it came to mean something in aesthetics where it becomes a spiritual. It, it becomes um, what the piece is really about. This this truth that comes out. Um, it is an artistic presence that you may not have words for. Mm. Uh, and it's very moving. And that idea of duende is something that, you know, the more you chase it, the more you're likely to mess it up. So you just got to be true to yourself because you can't right. just chase duende for the sake of chasing duende. You got you to be true to it. And then your manner of craft and your manner of sincerity is what hopefully creates a duende. Because you can't really formulate it because once you institutionalize it it stops being what it is oh god see again that speaks exactly to what we we're talking about before which is you know you 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 ride the tail of the comet you know and, and you're, you're not imposing your 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 ego on it you're 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 communing with it you're working with it and letting it you know take you where you got to go um fascinating stuff man so that so that leads me into so the the correlations now to the martial arts the physical body you know the physical art um what, what's the name of the art say it again for me uh pikiti terja pikiti terja now it, what, how is is that different that's different than the escrima or is that just a, a, a the name of the stick or I, i'm totally so lost. like you'll probably see words thrown around like escrima and arnis and then uh, arnis that was the as other of one. late kali right um so if you think of those as the generic term for like karate Okay. And there's different styles of karate, like Shogun karate, right. Shogun karate. Uh, the style of Filipino martial arts I do is Bikiti Terja Kali. Okay. It just I just call it Bikiti Terja, but right. it is a Filipino martial art. So if you say Arnis, Eskrima, Kali, it generally means the same thing in most circles. Right. And again, that was the 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 distance of thirds or the the what was it again? Close thirds. Close or third. close quarters. Close quarters. You know, to be more of a meaningful translation to Westerners. Right. So. When you start getting into this, how old are you? Like when you really, when once you go to that class and that you talked about before and you really discover it and you're like, I'm getting in and I'm going to stay. I think in. I was like 24, I want to say. Okay, so yeah, Something so like 25 years you've been doing this. Yeah, at least. And uh, what's your initial experience 
<laughs> when you first start? Oh. <laughs> so, well, I, I had initial experience with this guy, Omar Keen. Um, he's a teacher of a guy named Doug Marqueda. Have you heard of him? No. He was working on the History Channel, a part of their Forged and Fire TV show. Okay. But uh, Doug lives in the same city as I do. Other side, and, um, he knew about me. <laughs> and he brought his Bikini Church a teacher over to Rochester, and this guy Omar, and he was great. And so I did a seminar, and I was like, "Hey, I really like this." And it just so happened that um, through those connections, uh, there was an invite to go to someone's house. That person is a guy named Bill McGrath, who uh, is now, now my mentor and teacher and friend. But uh, he was like the guy, mm -hmm. uh, the Filipino guy who came over from the Philippines came over to. New York and taught a bunch of guys and the guy who ended up uh, getting the highest ranked position at the time was Bill McGrath and so there was an invite to go to his house for the first you know training camp so we went down to his house and it was the strangest experience normal residential neighborhood and we started going down this gravel driveway with uh, only one car could go through and there's branches coming from the side so as you're driving the side of your car was getting all scratched up <laughs> And we pull out to this little clearing. There's this house there with a fence, and there was a sign on there. Um, the dog's gonna make it to the fence in like 3.2 seconds. Can you? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And so, like that, this, I think it was like a pit bull and a, and a Rottweiler come charging out, barking at us. And the owner started saying, "You know, get back in here." And we got to the door, and it was uh, Bill McGrath. He was wearing this like boony hat, hat all these knives on him, he had a pistol here. Oh yeah, he had at least two guns I could see. And you know, he's sitting there, he's a big guy. He's like, hi, I'm Bill McGrath. And he's the friendliest guy. And we trained at his house for like three or four days. Um, you know, I slept in his den, the guys came wow. on the back. And it was just like all day training from waking up till at night, uh, story shared and, uh, yeah, be convinced that this was the thing I should be doing. And were you getting um, were you getting spanked around pretty good? The, were you getting whacked and, and like these early training? Were you feeling feeling it early? Like uh, this is it was this it was, is this I is was painful? not accustomed to training as long as we were mm -hmm. like all day, like all morning, all afternoon. So, like, all the sun exposure, people like bathing, bathing in sunscreen, just trying to drink water whenever they could. Um, no, it was really technical based. And then we did do sparring, and I ended up sparring a guy Steve, who is a power lifter. He was able to. He was able to bench press 350 after his pec tear. So he's a, he's a, he was like a high-rise construction worker. Um, he was like, he had like scars on his arms from welds gone wrong. Oh, geez. Uh, and so we were knife sparring. Uh, so we had these, you know, rattan dowels that were like shaved down to look like knives. So okay. It, it hurt. And they had fencing masks. That was it. Wow. And uh, I remember getting hit across the helmet. I remember seeing my whole world shift over and the rest of my body. It's like, wow, that was the hardest I've ever been hit. That, and I wasn't knocked unconscious. Um, and I was, it, I, it was for me. And you were so, like, that's it. I'm in. That's it. I, I'm, I'm in. I was in. I was in. I'm just in training. You know? Well, that's the thing about fighting is a lot of people, it's like you go one, one of two ways when that happens because it happens right off the bat in the beginning with, with any version of it. And you either really, you're like, let's get some more of that. Or I don't ever want to fucking do that again. <laughs> <laughs> How true that is. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so, uh, so that, and I just been training with him since, um, you know, the, the nice world of experiences, met some great people. Um, and in the process of learning this physical thing, just the process of, of going through the, the, the twists of logic that 
mental push-ups you do uh, help you become a better problem solver. You know, thinking three steps ahead of the game. Sure. All the things to consider. So it's interesting because it is a very physical art, and at the same time, it's a very cerebral. Uh, mm. Seeing the design of the curriculum, why it's designed a certain way, what each part of the curriculum is designed to solve—it's um, really affected my daily life as well. Well, what's interesting is I've seen a couple. You know, I've, I watch some of your stuff on Facebook where you put up training videos as if I'm as if I know what the fuck's going on. I have no idea, but I watch yeah, many. You, you used to punch people in the face. I, I, I mean, it's been a long time <laughs> since I punched anybody in the face, but uh, but I watch because I I I've, I've, I'm fascinated with the footwork of of the art forms that I love. So I. I watch that, and there's a real flow to it. You know, there's a real uh, uh, contrast and balance to, uh, you know, to step this way to cut this angle, but you're already setting up for the next, you know, there's a real, like you said, three steps ahead kind of vibe to it. Talk about the flow of, of that particular art and how, how one move flows into the next. So, well, it, uh, The art's really based on th uh, three pretext one there's going to be at least three enemies so oh, you can't spend so much time dueling with one guy you got to get it done uh if you flick him in the eye and he you know licks his wounds and crawls under a bush that's fine you know your chances are you're not going to see that guy again you got to get to the next wow one. um the other part is that for every attack there's a counter and every counter there's a recounter so uh, once you get used to attacking you get used to figuring out what the counters are for that and you know, how do you counter that counter? Mm. And so you start thinking about like what can be done to you as you're doing something to someone else and how do you cut them off? So you try to develop a sense of uncounterability, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, then the other aspect is just three ranges, long range, medium range, and, and, and close range. And how do you find functionality in each? Uh, some people specialize in one range or another. In Bikini, we really do specialize in, in close range, but we still have the medium and the long range. Um, you figure me close range is the hardest thing to deal with, so we start there because if you can handle that, you can handle the other. Right. And then there's this kind of overlying feel to each of those precepts, which is uh, your opponents are armed. There's if you don't see a weapon, it's only because he hasn't pulled it yet. Mm. So you know your three opponents, they're likely armed. You assume that they're armed, and you know every every encounter has a has a weapon involved, uh, you know, including the one you just brought. So, mm. Whether it's a weapon of opportunity or whether you just carry it, and is it essentially a a a, a sort of uh, a fight uh, as opposed to flight or freeze? It's sort of like uh, it's like how how do I get in and out of this as quickly as possible so that I can get away and, and end this conflict? Is it, it's that kind of a thing? It's not. It is. It's, it's, it's you're not looking to engage. Is the, it's a self defense art. There's there's other arts that are you can really tell that they're really designed for dueling. Um, mm. it's, you know, you're really dealing with one person and whatnot. Uh, with Bikini Treasure, the assumption is that you know if you got a guy starting to fight with you, take a quick look over your shoulder because he's probably got a buddy you know sneaking up behind you that sort of thing. Uh, and so you got to get out of there. So when you talk about the footwork, the footwork does a lot for you. It generates power. Um, you know, it gets you to safety. It helps you you know, kind of catch points of view that you didn't catch before because you got to look for an escape point. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's really a really well thought out part. And if you find someone who teaches it really well, it's a, it's pretty amazing. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, my frame of reference, obviously, is I'm a huge boxing fan and that's a, and, yeah. and a boxing historian and, 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 and love it and, and all that stuff and study it and have trained it and all that type of stuff. 
obviously very different, two very different things. One is, is real world uh, situation, you know, multiple attacker ended as quickly as possible. But I'm curious because to be successful as a boxer, if you can master range and timing and angles, that's really it. If, if, you, if you have the mastery of the distance you want, you, where you keep it at the range you want it to keep it at, at every step, whether you want to get in, get out, in close outs, you, you, if you master the range of the fight and if you master the angles of the fight, and uh, and if you master the uh, the timing, speed is you know you can have guys with great speed, but if if you have better timing, you're going to beat the it speed. You're going to beat the speed every time. So I'm curious if if that has any correlation to what you're what you're doing. Absolutely, um, you know some of the the real things that you're trying to get better at. You know, trying to get better at your power generation. You have technique. You have speed, but you have timing. And accuracy. If you get those things down, you know, then you understand that you just stack more powder in your powder charge, so to speak. So, you know, some parts of the footwork are really designed to help you generate power. Mm. And there's some other aspects of the footwork that are really meant to be elusive so you can catch range and catch those angles. But more often than not, every time you take a step, you're achieving more than one goal. And so I try to, whenever I take a step, I'm trying to achieve several things at once. Um, that way I don't have to like figure out and go back and redo something because you can't. Right. So uh, I try to be elusive and do it in a way where if I can generate power to hit them while I'm doing it, I'll do that. Um, technique is a great thing because it really, you know, in, in boxing, what is it like? You know, five punches, right? Yeah. I mean, it's but just gives them different ways you can do all these right, punches. Right, exactly. Depending on where you're standing, you know, the sweet science of that. You know, um, so bikini really isn't that different in that it's like forehands, backhands, and thrusts uh, but counter with the full work there's a lot of different ways that can go and especially when he's trying to counter you and because of the nature of weapons and some of the, the permanent uh, you know, repercussions of that um, you know you better be good with your counters and your recounters or preventing him from countering um, I think there's actually a lot more in common with boxing than a lot of the other com combative arts in fact uh, the knife fighting should look like good boxing Right. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. And it's certainly it's certainly different than the grappling arts, you know, where they, yes. they're just looking to get a... I would imagine you don't want to get into that kind of kind of a situation when weapons are involved. No, you don't. You don't want to be tangled up on the ground, you know, and right. thinking that you're choking some guy out and then have the guy's girlfriend come up and see you. <laughs> right. Because you know, it happens. You know. And it is always the guy's girlfriend that comes and slits your throat. Right. If it's not your own girlfriend. It, 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 you know, you feel safe, you know, that's... You know, a female there, but she's the one who's carrying the straight edge. That's you know? right. So, you know, the, the, there is that aspect of, like, you know, trying to avoid the dueling. Right. You know, where they're, you know if, if there's an assumption that there's one guy that you got to beat, and it's an agreed set of rules. Um, right. It's not like that. Now, so, you have, like I said, we, you've been doing this for 25 years. You recently became, if, I, if I'm mistaken, correct me, but you recently, within the last couple of years, I guess, right, became, what is the word? Uh, Tuhan. Tuhan, which is like like a master, like a grand dude. The grand poobah, <laughs> headwater buffalo. <laughs> so a Tuhan. So what does that mean? What was that process like to become that? What is that about? Well, it's weird because you know, it was like the Tuhan is a very revered uh, rank in Bikini Georgia. Uh, for years it was just 
Leo Gahe, the Grand Tuhan, the guy who was you know who came over from the Philippines, and the first person he made Tuhan after his years of study was Bill McGrath, the one mm -hmm. my teacher. Um, when I was studying, I really had no grand illusions of rank. I just wanted to get good at stuff. So you know, when the time came to test the first time in Vegas, in like '96, I think '97. Uh, I passed the test, I guess we did well. I just focused on good body dynamics and, you know, and did the drills and it was great. And I just approached that with every single test. So I, once you complete all these tests, and it's a really large system. Sure. Um, once you complete the entire system, you get something called Matasana Guru. Guru means teacher and Matasana means high stuff. So it's like high stuff teachers, master teacher. So for what it was worth, I passed the test and I was fine with it. Um, usually the next step is a magano, which is like elder or a man who's uh, respected for a particular skill. <coughs> but again, not a skill, not a rank chaser. Uh, all I wanted to do was use the art and teach the art and help other people get good at the art because you know some of these people who learn the art come to me because you know they really need it for their job. Right. Um, like so that's uh, all like I did, uh, like you know, uh, that's uh, a policeman or one day. Bill McGrath, Tuan Bill McGrath, said, I think it's time to make you Tuan. And I was like, I don't get it, sir. You know, it's like, not like I did anything different. He said, you have the time in. You know, I, you know, it totally skipped my mind. Like, I, when you said you are doing this for 25 years, I thought maybe, you know, why did I meet this guy you know, Tuan early? And, you know, we went back and forth uh, in emails, and I said, well, listen, if you're going to make me Tuan, you got to make my, you, know, you should really consider my classmate, Scott Falk, he's in it longer and he's also metastico. So he said, all right, fine. And that's what happened. And so that happened in 2017. And ever since I've been trying to find ways to be kind of deserving of that because the, the title 200 in my mind is, is, is the big one. And I, I was, I'm still waiting for my superpowers to show up. <laughs> I, I, I really kid around with them every once in a while. So it doesn't happen. So it, it, it's not so much about gaining superpowers. It's about what you're doing for the system and the people in it. Uh, if the system is serving the right people, then it's a good system. Right. Um, but if you're a slave to the system, if you're just doing it to promote the system, uh, and that's the end goal, I don't think that's right. I think you've got to be able to serve people to make it useful and relevant. Well, this is, uh, so, this is clearly a theme that has run through your entire life, back to the guy who was walking out of the art galleries because the guys weren't so concerned about the art. They were concerned about getting the pat on the back. It's the same, yeah. it's the same theme here is, uh, is that uh, you know, it's not about the title of Tuhan. It's about what that means and what you can serve people with be, being a Tuhan of this, uh, this art form. I'm curious, what do you think... That guerrilla fighter who served on that ship, who who oh. was your dad, would think of a Philippine martial art, you know, Tuhan. Would there be a certain pride in that? I mean, he saw me do the stick stuff and knife stuff, the sort of stuff in the backyard, <laughs> get-togethers. Um, I, think he, I think he enjoyed the fact that he was doing it, and, and he, he'd always relate it back to my Lolo uh, Leoncio. So I think he, he he likes that part, but you know the the term Tuhan, I think is more of a recent uh, term being used in like the last sure. 30, 40 years or so. Um, I think he's just I think he would be glad to see that as anglicized as my generation of, of the Tories are, that I want to retain some of the Filipino heritage as as we develop in America because I'm obviously very you know American born Filipino. Right. 
Uh, I don't speak the language, but you know, I, I do know the feeling and do know the cust some of the customs. And a lot of getting back to the, the fighting arts after looking at the Dan and the Santa book was like, wow, I'd like to learn more about my culture. And it's done that. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'd be proud of it. You know, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, in, in, the, in the sport I love, you know, one of the greatest of all time is Filipino. That's uh, Manny, Manny Pacquiao is one of the best who ever laced on gloves. So, you know, it's funny when you look back at, you know, your love of like pugilism, you know, and like buying the gloves and fashioning these championship belts out of tin and <laughs> That's right. scrap leather, you know, and then like you know, the boxing card games and the boxing video games and right. stuff, you know, that's an example of, you know, a love for something, you know, and it's still there, you know, your gloves are hanging in the background. That's right. Yeah. Um, so if you have a love for something, uh, you're more willing to do it. And when I talk to students, uh, I tell them, do something out of, out of love, not fear. There's a difference between the word caring and careful. Mm. If you're being careful, careful implies the emotion of fear, that you're afraid to do something because you might mess up or whatever. And that prevents you from doing a lot of stuff. But if you do something out of love, you're being caring. And therefore, if you love something enough, you're willing to take the risk to do right by it. So when in doubt, be caring about what you do and not being careful about what you do. That's, that's uh, I, very poignant, yeah, that's brilliant. And I, and I try to keep that in mind, like, you know, why am I doing what am I, what I'm doing? Am I doing something out of fear or more precisely, am I not doing something out of fear or am I doing something because it needs to get done because there's a greater love that's being served here. And, you know, I try to adhere to that. That's awesome. Well, as we're, we're going to wrap it up in a, in a, in a bit, but I just want to, Tie the two things together. First of all, do you still? I, I know you're teaching both things now. You both, you're, you're a teacher, uh, an art teacher, and you're also the two Han who teach. But by the way, who you said you teach people who need it for their job, like like police officer type people, or like who need? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we just, <laughs> so there's an omerta to this. We just we don't we we don't we it's Fight Club. We don't first rules. We don't say. I, I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, so you're teaching both of these art forms. Um, if if I present that to you now, do you see? Can you see correlations in them? Do you see? Oh, absolutely. What would what would you say would be something? The biggest correlation I see, and I do it all the time, is the problem solving. Mm. Uh, being uh, someone who's involved in creative thought, you figure out solutions to something, something that may not be as evident to someone else. Um, and of course, because if, if you're doing something out of being caring, loving, you're going to find the way to make it happen. You know, and then when you look at the martial arts, it's like it is a, a, a lot of problem solving it has to be done on the fly so you got to make sure your craft is done for that moment of truth because otherwise it's never going to come out you know people talk about practice makes perfect mm, practice makes permanent uh, perfect practice <laughs> makes perfect mm. you know and so you know most of the time i'm not fighting for my life you know? uh, so you know why spend all this time preparing that way because it gets your mind disciplined it makes you see options where there weren't options so you know if I have to be in a life in that situation, maybe I'll I react the right way. But most of the time I'm not. So what am I gaining from this, all this time investment? I'm doing all these mental push-ups that it requires um, to be a better problem solver on the fly. And that applies as an, uh, everywhere. Everywhere. Whether it's, you know, child rearing, whether it's, you know, parenting, whatever, you know, cooking. Right. How's your brother doing? 
my brother's in Arizona doing his thing. You know, if he, he, he teaches like something too, doesn't isn't he to teach something? He does direct Torres Escrima. He's a, he's a maestro. Or actually, he's a, he's the master in that. Uh, different system, but still like in the Kali Armisa Escrima family. Um, they do a lot of like, you know, mixed martial arts stuff too mm. in that, that school. So I still have to visit him out in Arizona. So when this all blows off, I, I hope to visit him. We'll see. You know, this is dragging out. And yeah. I have a lot of commitments at home too. So. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get. We'll get through it. We'll get there. Well, I'll tell you, my friend. This is. Uh, this has been a, a fantastic uh, little time to spend on this. I hope people picked up a lot of stuff on it. Um, for someone who, uh, first of all, uh, is there, is this like a, particularly the 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 martial art? Is this something you can find? Is that something yeah. you can find? You just know? Google Pekiti Tersha, P-E-K-I-T-I, and then it's Tersha, T-I-R-S-I-A. Yeah. And there's a bunch of different, there's like uh, five main organizations that teach uh, teach art, and I'm with Pekiti Tersha International. Okay. All right. So you can, if someone's looking to study that, you know, there's it's probably, around. it's around, there's some place to find it. Okay, good. Because it was. Yeah, it was, actually on Long Island too, I think. Oh, is that right? But yeah. My, my teacher's like just like an hour north of New York City too, so. Well, one of my big regrets is that you're so far away that I couldn't go up there and just get my ass kicked by you a few times. I, I, I wish you, I wish I was closer to you because I'd train with you all day if I could, you know. I could that would use be it. Fun, but I've actually thought the same of you. It's like, you know, that'd be kind of cool just throw on the, the gloves and just train back like in the apartment in Queens, just lifting and stuff. Yeah. Danes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we could hit the mitts. That would be great, man. That would be a blast. Oh, I would love that. Um, so last little thing. Um, uh, to the aspiring, because you are a, a teacher in so many aspects, in every aspect of your life. Uh, what do you tell the young, the young kid who's looking to, uh, who's, who finds that thing that, like you said, not only do they love, but they, like you, they are willing to give, to do that as opposed to the other thing. They, they, they find the discipline in it is as enjoyable as going out with the guys. What do you tell that kid who finds that first kernel of that to, to move forward the way we did? It was, uh, think about the advice I would give to my son, Jake. Um, whatever decision you have to make, make it as if I'm standing right behind you because I will. And that means you make a decision out of love. You know, make the, don't, don't do the decisions out of fear. Make a decision out of love. That's what I would tell you now, and that's what I would tell you if I could after my death. Do that, because you'll regret if you don't. It's all love or fear, man. It's all it just love or fear. Big motivators. That's it. Well, I love you, pal. I have it. I have It's been oh, it's man. been so long to, to see you. It's it's so awesome to have have a virtual drink with you and. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my virtual drink before you. Th that's right. Exactly. <laughs> you, you made me open the bottle of scotch, so I I, I kind of give you that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, fifty years together. Uh, uh, at some point, so I know it's it hurts to say sometimes. It's but, awesome. It is is, but uh, but I'll get up there at some point. Uh, and, and, and hang out with you for, uh, you know, when you're on your yeah, summer break. Yeah, yeah. Or you, you get like a break or stuff, right, in the summertime sometimes or no? Oh, yeah, I'm off in the summer. I mean, if anything, I'm, uh, I'm doing uh, schooling for uh, my son with autism, Josh. So, yeah. But, yeah, 
that's yeah. all by. Yeah, I would definitely come up there and, and, and check it out. But uh, I appreciate you giving me this time, and I hope uh, hope people uh, got a, a lot out of this. This is the longest friendship of my life, and uh, it's like a, a blessing to have it on uh, recording. You know, I hope people get something out of this too. But I, you know, I just for me, it's like I just got to chill for like an hour and a half with like my oldest friend in the world. So, <laughs> so. yes, awesome. Thanks so much, Jack. All right. Love you too, brother, man. Take care. And then uh, we'll catch up in the virtual world and hopefully in real life. All right.